The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Good times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my partners, Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin, also published two excellent newsletters. Uh, Trader Tracks is Roger's publication, and What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? is Chen Lin's uh, publication. Uh, you can follow uh, and learn more about all three newsletters by going to miningstocks.com. Or you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, for more information in New York at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. You can also go to J. Taylor Media. That's J-A-Y, Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com. To access this show and everything I do and my partners do, also I would like to remind you that you can follow me on Twitter, under the uh, new handle now, we're using J. Taylor Media. That's J-A-Y Taylor Media. Well, before we go any further, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable for this week uh, and for the first hour of today's show. Our sponsors are American Manganese, uh, Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. This week, the equity market is rallying as uh, governments have manipulated, I think, manipulated the markets once again, um, conning them into believing that they can fix things by printing more money. And uh, it, uh, it sort of works for all of us in the short run. We all like to see, uh, we all like to see prices rising, of course, especially those things that we own. But, um, you know, what has really been accomplished by the Greek elections that it seemed to be smoothing or soothing some people's nerves over the weekend? Well, I think it's a, just a, a temporary thing because, as James Turk pointed out uh, today, and I'm going to read over some of the things he said, I guess it was in yesterday on King World News, uh, James doesn't buy it, um, neither do I, and I think most people of an Austrian school of persuasion think that this is, uh, that nothing serious is going to come of, nothing seriously good is going to come of the uh, policies that are made that have been put into effect. But let me just read some of James Turk's comments uh, because I think they are very, very, uh, apropos uh, for what is going on, and I'm quoting James from yesterday uh, on um, on King World. Well, James says the Greek election has come and gone, but the Greek vote has changed nothing. 
Europe is still in a severe crisis, and every attempt to solve this crisis has failed because no serious solutions have been proposed. All the central planners did was buy time, and that precarious time has been squandered with their various schemes. There are two crises, actually, but they are interlinked. Worryingly, these sovereign debt and bank insolvency crises are deepening. Today, we have Spanish 10-year yield topping 7%. That is the level that brought Greece, Ireland, and Portugal to their knees. These countries asked for bailouts because private lenders no longer wanted to take the risk of lending money to them. Three years ago, when the Greek crisis was just getting started, I wrote an article that focused on the core issue that still resonates today. That article noted that the fuse on the sovereign debt crisis had been lit, and I asked whether the crisis would bring uh, about the end of national socialism because governments had run out of money. Since then, it has become clear that governments have also run out of borrowing capacity. The central planners have uh, used up their ability to borrow to keep their game going. The socialist governments of Europe spent taxpayer money to live up to live far beyond their means, while politicians made promises that could never be fulfilled. The interesting point, though, is that these unrealistic promises have become clearer to everyone except socialist politicians and the people who vote for them, who either don't understand or hope that these promises are not hollow. We can see this divide in this weekend's Greek election. Older voters supported the bailout, while younger voters threw their weight behind the renegotiating or defaulting on the externally imposed austerity measures. It was not a vote for or against the euro, because 80% of the Greek population want to keep the currency. The choice voters faced was business as usual, or making an about-face and heading in the right direction. In that sense, what happened in Greece is much like what we are seeing in the United States, with the support being given by younger Americans to Ron Paul. By a slim margin, the older Greek voters won. Those older voters hope the unrealistic promise of Greek politicians will be kept, but younger voters sense the reality of the situation. It is these younger voters who are without work because of the 53% youth unemployment rate. Understandably, they want and need economic conditions to change. Focus will now shift to France, where elections this weekend brought in a socialist majority in their parliament. We'll soon see whether President Francois Hollande will find the money to fulfill his election promises to hire 12,000 civil servants a year. How he expects more central planners are supposed to help a weakening economy is beyond me. So what it comes down to is who is going to blink first, Germany and its like-minded neighbors who want the Bundesbank discipline for managing the euro, or will it be the socialist and central planners? The London Telegraph reported on Friday, quote, Mrs. Merkel warned the policies of the new socialist president uh, in France could destroy the eurozone by bringing the sovereign debt crisis to France itself. That is where I think the crisis is headed. It seems inevitable that the eurozone will soon split. To make matters worse, there is an added worry of private lenders because the euro, uh, 100 billion bailout for Spanish banks, will supposedly be senior to existing debts. So just as occurred with the Greek bailout, governments changed the rules to favor government institutions over the private markets. Europe is becoming increasingly unfavorable to private capital, so it is not surprising money is moving to other parts of the world. 
This is having the undesired effect of further weakening the European economy. For a few weeks now, I have been saying that we are headed into a fear event. There has been no change in my thinking. That means that I am still looking for gold to shock markets participants by soaring this summer. This will also pull the silver price higher as well. Similarly, because there is no shortage of liquidity, as there was when Lehman collapsed, I expect this fear event will mean the prices of the mining shares are headed much higher also. That's the end of the quotes from James Turk. Well, with respect to gold shares, I certainly uh, uh, should pass on to you that for my subscribers, I turned somewhat more bullish this past week uh, in line with James Turk's views. I do want to still hold a lot of cash. I do think there are going to be cheaper uh, stocks still, although I'm not quite sure that we haven't seen the bottom for the gold shares. Uh, I think we may have, which is why I've turned more aggressive. Um, in the second hour of today's show, uh, we'll be taking a look at one junior gold company that uh, we talked to before. Brian Marr, the president and CEO of Prodigy Gold, will be with us after uh, 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 in the second hour of today's show towards the end of the show. And getting back to the topic of gold in the second hour of today's show, John Butler, an investment banker and author of a book titled the Golden Revolution will be joining us to tell us why he believes we are inevitably heading back to a global gold-backed monetary system. And John's views, I dare say, are very close to those of James Turk because John believes that in order to achieve a gold-backed monetary system, we will need to see a gold price many thousands of dollars higher than where gold is today in the 1500-1600 range. So fiat monetary systems have not only served to make bankers rich and politicians gain a bigger share of GDP, uh, it has also allowed our military to get involved in foreign wars, which, as Ron Paul has pointed out in his, uh, in his uh, talks, uh, presents a blowback effect on the United States. The reason they came over here, Ron says, and the CIA said, is because we were over there. The CIA has said that, uh, has really, uh, not one, but many CIA reports have said that. Um, and, but the politicians who are bought and paid for by the bankers and the military-industrial complex have succeeded in getting the American people to laugh at Ron Paul's idea. I can only remember uh, the, the way he was scoffed at at the GOP uh, debates uh, early on when he suggested that. So fiat money has enabled the expansion of Amer America's military uh, overseas, in addition to wasting assets with endless military activity and killing tens of thousands of innocent citizens in the process, our country's military expansion also plays a role in our own freedom and liberties. And I have to go to a book that I recently read, To End All Wars, by Adam Hochschild, uh, and a quote in there uh, was, once governments become captive of wars they purport to control, they turn next on their own people. And so it is with regard to some very important questions leading up to the 9-11 attack on America. Americans are apparently not allowed to know the full truth. Specifically, I'm talking about a question another guest of ours, who's going to be joining us shortly, uh, raised about the 9-11, about the, uh, the behavior of M1, the liquid money supply, uh, right before 9-11. Uh, so at about 3.30 Eastern time, we're going to be talking to Bill Bergman, He's the former Chicago Fed economist who lost his job at the Fed because he raised questions about that very issue. Why was there this sudden surge in M1? Who knew it was going to happen? That's the question. Bergman actually wrote the famous Beige Book for the Fed, so he is a very accomplished economist, but he is a person of integrity and one who has not been afraid to pay the price uh, 
for seeking truth. We need more people like Bill Bergman, in my view, but we'll be talking to him at around 3.30. We are just about to go to commercial break now, but when we come back, I'm going to talk to another radio talk show host, Carrie Lutz, uh, who is a friend of mine. Uh, Carrie has a very special, a very similar view to mine in, in terms of uh, his, uh, uh, his desire for limited government and, and optimal freedom for individuals and free markets. Uh, I'm going to ask Kerry to talk a bit about his show, which I think will no doubt be of great interest to many of you uh, who listen to this show uh, because of our similarity of, of, uh, of interest and views, but also because of our similarity of guests. Many of the high-profile guests we've had on our show, Kerry uh, Lutz has on his show, uh, and I was privileged to be part of his show earlier today. Uh, so we're going to talk to Kerry about about um, many of the things that he uh, that he espouses and things uh, ideas that he is talking about we're going to talk to him about some of his guests that he's had and something called the triple lutz report uh which we'll ask him uh, to talk about uh, the triple lutz report number 194 ben bernanke speaks and gold crashes again well we certainly know that the policymakers uh, are very adept at um, let's say managing Managing feelings and behavior of the public. I think our propaganda machine in the United States, is, as uh, Dmitry Orlov said on this show some time ago, second to none. No way was the Soviet Union's propaganda machine anything close to as effective as ours uh, because we have all of these very, very respectable people from institutions like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Oxford, and the like who come on dressed very nicely, speak eloquent English, English, uh, and uh, who then uh, sort of uh, well how can you how can you doubt such wise and well educated people? Well, I think Kerry Lutz uh, keeps an open mind, and, and his show is all about um, questioning the establishment as uh, very much as this show is. So we're going to go to break now, and when we come back, we'll be with Kerry Lutz, and then we're going to be talking to a whole lot of other very interesting people today, Bill Bergman, uh, and, um, and and also we're going to be talking to John Butler. Uh, and our prodigy gold CEO as well. Don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arrowway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arrowway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arrowway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? 
Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future voice america business network the bottom line in business you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really Pleased to have with me a friend and uh, colleague, I said perhaps a competitor, but uh, a very good friend and a person of like mind, Carrie Lutz. At least uh, we're certainly not completely of like mind because we're two separate individuals and individualists, I would say. But certainly the one thing that we do have in common is the quest for optimum freedom uh, of the, at least freedom and responsibility for the individual. And uh, Carrie, uh, is um, really he's uh, had a very mixed, uh, very let's say diverse is a better choice of words career. He's been a lawyer, he's been an entrepreneur, and now he's a radio talk show host. He really became interested in Austrian economics back in uh, around 1977 or so, um, and he uh, uh, and so he's really pursued his interest along those lines on the radio. Uh, and I just recently ran into Kerry for the first time um, uh, in New York at the uh, Hard Asset Show. Uh, and it's really a really a pleasure to have learned to to know him. I'm really happy to have you with me today, Kerry. Welcome. AJ, hey it's great to be on, and I'm drinking a uh, double gulp in your honor and in honor of personal freedom, a soon-to-be-outlawed banned beverage in New York City. Yes, um, I- indeed. As, as I understand it, uh, our mayor here, I think it's our mayor, uh, wants to make it illegal to drink more than so much Coke uh, I guess diet Coke as well uh, in a uh, given day. I think it's sugar beverages, uh, ah. soft drinks, and sweetened juices. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that 16 ounces is enough. And if you want any more than that, you'll have to buy a refill. I see. I see. So, so you just have to probably probably ends up benefiting the uh, the the, uh, the beverage companies that produce this stuff because you're going to end up paying more per ounce. Yeah, yeah, and now they're coming after popcorn in movie theaters and milkshakes, and what's next? What is next? What do you think? Speculate a bit. Well, cameras I in think, our bedrooms. 
Uh, currency controls, uh, for, for sure. sure. Well, we know that they're coming. You know, uh, they're just tightening the noose. You know, now they've got guys uh, going around the airport uh, asking you if you're on an international flight, do you have more than $10,000 in your pocket that you haven't declared? And, you know, they're just tightening the noose uh, one freedom at a time, and they'll distract you with going after what you're eating, while at the same time they're imposing additional reporting requirements, whatever it takes to wring out the maximum amount of milk from the uh, from the cows that produce the uh, the juice that keeps the system going. Yeah. How did we get into this, Kerry? I mean, it was uh, certainly the antithesis of what our founding fathers had in mind, limited government. Government wasn't supposed to do much of anything except protect our borders, perhaps, and uh, make sure that you had a legal system that enforced the contracts. What? How have we gone wrong? How... Why has this happened to us? Well, I think a lot of it's human nature, and a lot of it's uh, what happens in empires. I think that on certain levels, our children, and that's my generation, baby boomers, uh, spoiled by their parents, wanting them to have it better than they've ever had it before in the absence of suffering. I think prosperity corrupts, and... And then people want things, and the government's there to give it to them. And once, you know, once they start giving, how do you stop? It's like yeah. Well, yeah. Like once you accept that notion that there is a free lunch, that you can get something for nothing, or that, or that maybe it has to be paid for, but it needs to be the other guy that pays for me and my pleasures and my, and my life. Uh, then, then I guess once you've headed down that slippery slope. Where do you go from there? I know Ian McAvity has, has talked about we're at the point now in America where 49.5% of the population votes for a living and 50.5% work for a living, and that's going to change in the other direction very shortly as my generation, your generation, I think I'm a little older than you. I'm at the, at the leading edge of the baby boomers. We are, we'll be the first ones to really, really uh, sock it to this country's uh, budget. But, um, you know, we all want to have something for nothing. It's human nature. I guess you're right about that. But certainly I would, uh, I would suggest, and I'd like your idea on this, that when Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971, that really paved the way for uh, this, this um, illusion that we could have something for nothing because credit suddenly became, uh, became so readily available. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, it was kind of the final nail in the coffin because it was a very limited gold gold standard that only applied to international trade between countries, but it was the last fig leaf. And once they no longer had to worry about that, then they were free, pretty much unfettered, to make unlimited numbers of currency units and and then buy votes. And it really went downhill from there because I don't think the standard of living, I think it's it's decreased by 50% at least since 1970 there's a lot of things that went wrong with the country after 1971 after that act and while you can't trace them back directly there certainly appears to be a relationship to it as with all societies the byzantines the romans every empire debases its currency eventually and the result is always the same yeah it uh, and we're seeing as we've had uh, todd walker um uh, I should say Walker Todd, uh, economist at the Federal Reserve on our uh, former Federal Reserve economist and, and attorney who was on our show 
uh, a couple, three weeks ago, talking about the middle class, the decline in the middle class, uh, for sure, since the high mark was in the late 60s, I think early 70s, uh, and then from then on, uh, you know, shortly after, we started increasing uh, the money supply very rapidly with the uh, when gold was taken off of the uh, international gold standard, then that sort of freed everybody up. Uh, the U.S. could start to spend on expansion, uh, on socialism, on, on foreign wars, and uh, the whole world started going on a credit binge, it seems to me. And, you know, uh, Kerry, it seems to we've had John Perkins on this show. He talked about how America's policy uh, in the post-World War II era was to uh, was to get third world countries indebted so they had to sell us their raw materials and uh, and you know you have you have people you sort of have people over the barrel when you when you are the creditor and they are the debtor don't you and the whole American public is now great you know is, is so much in debt and all of this of course came about with the uh, with the liberalization of credit which which uh, seemed to occur very rapidly after uh, after Nixon took us off the gold standard. Well, I want to get into. We only have you know three four minutes here, Carrie, and I want to ask you a little bit more. Uh, talk a little bit about your show. Um, what what is the show called, and, and how can people access it? Uh, it's called the Financial Survival Network, and FinancialSurvivalNetwork.com is the website. We're on iTunes. We're on YouTube. You just have to type in Financial Survival Network, and it'll all come up and. You know, we're getting, you know, like you, hundreds of thousands of downloads a month. Amazing interest in a very short period of time, just like you. Yeah, it, it really is. There really is a, a thirst for information outside of the mainstream because I think people generally believe they're not getting the full story from the mainstream press. Uh, but let's get some of the things that you talk about. You, you also are on, a, I think, a regular uh, station or two in the United States, I think in Connecticut and Greenwich or someplace. Yeah. Yeah, we're on 1490 WGCH, which is in Greenwich, which I call the belly of the beast. Because there's more hedge fund managers here, Wall Streeters and other ne'er-do-wells than any place else except Manhattan. Yeah, it's a very wealthy neighborhood, no doubt about that. Well, I'm going to ask you about the Triple Lutz Report. It's something that's going over real big on your show. Tell us, what is that, the Triple Lutz Report? Well, I was thinking of a name for a report to do commentary, and my trainer, who's from Hungary, uh, who I don't work out with enough, she said, why don't you call it the Triple Lutz Report? So I said, yeah, I like that name. And it's basically, it's somewhat of a rant, but it's a commentary on a particular event or a series of events taking place, like when Bernanke met and instantly the price of gold yet again got slammed. And like FDR said, there's no coincidences when it comes to politics. Hmm. That price got slammed then they wanted it slammed. And I'm kind of fed up with manipulated markets because markets exist for price discovery to give people information to make decisions. And when they're manipulated, when they're totally perverted and become political tools, they lose that value, and the public, the country, the world suffers as a result. Yeah. Well, if uh, information or misinformation is fed into the into the marketplace, uh, then of course the results will not be as efficient as they would be if people were, you know, had fr a free flow of truthful information to to make their decisions by. But yeah, you uh, your Lutz report 194 uh, sort of implies just from the headlines, and I didn't uh, have the time to listen to it. I'm sorry uh that uh, Ben Bernanke um, that his that his speak that his speech uh, the things he said. 
probably uh, caused uh, the gold to tank on that given day. Whether or not that's true, it certainly is is true that the uh, that the policymakers. I think it's true. I think I'm safe in saying it's true that the policymakers don't want people really. And Alan Greenspan actually himself said this: do not want people to start uh, losing confidence in the dollar. They want them to have com- or, uh, and gaining confidence in gold. So clearly, the spin has to be: we're in control. We're going to fix things. Everything's going to be all right. Trust us, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like. They're trying to say that wet sidewalks cause rain, all right? Mm -hmm. So a high gold price causes a loss of faith in the currency? I don't think so. The reason gold goes up is because people are losing faith. So all they do by manipulating it is increase demand and fool the market, not necessarily, and let these sovereigns come in and grab it at discounted prices. It's like a rent control department in New York. You know, imagine being able to rent an apartment for a thousand dollars that should go for three to five thousand a month. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine being able to buy precious metals at probably around a third to sixty percent of what they should be trading at based on historic trends. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, it's uh, there are those people, of course, that are not paying full attention, or at least they are, but they're they're also seeking information outside of the mainstream. They don't carry. That's what you seek to do on your show. I seek to do that. Uh, we, many people, are asking questions these days, and uh, I'm sorry we don't have more time. We have to have you back again sometime soon because uh, Walter Williams, uh, Greg Hunter, Chris Duani, uh, a whole bunch of people you've had on your show, a, very, a lot of very interesting things to say. Tell our listeners once again where they can go to listen to your show. Sure, Jay. And, hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's financialsurvivalnetwork.com, and I'm looking forward to working closer with you in the future, Jay. Likewise, thanks so much for being uh, with us today. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with former Federal Reserve economist Bill Bergman, who has some very interesting things to tell us about the behavior of M1 just uh, weeks before the 9-11 attack on America. Don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, Jay. We'll talk to you later. Thank you, Kerry. Hey, Take thank care. you. Be good. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? 
Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelier Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded, located in stable eastern Canada. The Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future voice america business network the bottom line in business you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time today, William or Bill Bergman. I guess uh, prefers being called Bill, but uh, his official name is William. Uh, Mr. Bergman has served, uh, has 10 years of experience as a stock market analyst, uh, sandwiched around 13 years as an economist and financial markets policy analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. He earned an MBA as well as an MA in public policy from the University of Chicago in 1990. His research work at the Fed included writing the Chicago Fed uh, contribution to the Federal Reserve Beige Book. And while at the Fed, he also worked uh, on the role of credit ratings in regulation, including uh, capital regulation. Some recent areas he has worked on include the implications uh, of national emergency and war powers uh, that they pose for the Federal Reserve, money laundering and a wholesale uh, and wholesale payment uh, systems design, risk, performance, and pricing. Uh, Bill is currently working with Social uh, Movement Sciences LLC. That's a, a new enterprise developing evaluation and funding service for not-for-profit organizations. Welcome, Bill. Really good to have you on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. It was nice to meet you. Thank you. Really great to have you. I really enjoyed your comments at the, at the last uh, CMRE uh, dinner meeting in New York, uh, and that's how I first met up with you. Um, really enjoyed what you had to say. You were an economist uh, at the Federal Reserve, and you're, you contributed to the Beige Book. Um, the Beige Book, I hear it mentioned all the time, but for the sake of our listeners, could you ha- perhaps tell us uh, what that Beige Book is about? What is this? Sure, Jay. Uh, every, every six weeks or so, the Fed puts together the Beige Book, which is a review of economic conditions. Each of the 12 Federal Reserve Bank districts put together a contribution, three pages or so, and it's a, it's a really an interesting and, well, it's, it's putting aside questions whether or not the Fed is a valuable thing to have, 
if we do have a Fed, the base book is a valuable exercise. It's something that's pretty important in light of the ambiguity that lies underneath our official economic statistics. The base book is relying principally on conversation with real business people mm-hmm. about conditions in their marketplaces for in housing and and other forms of real estate and manufacturing, labor markets, uh, some temporary help companies are some of the best uh, resources I had in talking to people about up to the minute or up to the date or up to the you know current timely information, independent of official government statistics. There are some very interesting stories I can tell you about. You know, not always, but the, the ambiguity underneath some of our basic economic statistics about inflation and employment. Are, um, it's pretty interesting sometimes how hard it is to really measure that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, the base book is an attempt to talk to real business people about about what's going on in their in their marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Well, probably not so easy to quantify it though, in in many ways. But and and I guess you're uh, you would have the regional feds would all have their own would be really talking to people in their own districts, right? So that you would have a picture of the various regions in the country, which would be quite different at times, I suppose. And, and it can. Uh, historically, for instance, the Midwest has been a very economically sensitive area. And talking to capital goods manufacturers, the auto companies in Detroit, and, and other people, the, the Midwest has been a good place to be doing that kind of work. But in the latest, uh, our latest disaster, it's been a nationwide phenomenon with some of the places that normally are kind of resistant to a recession. Uh, providing, for instance, the Southeast was very sensitive to the problems in the housing crisis. So it, it always changes. And, and yeah, there's, some, there's, a, there's a good window on economic conditions in the Beige Book, and there's some good people trying to work on it to put it together. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly would be interesting to actually talk to real people, real businesses, uh, and, and uh, that would bring you to the real lives of people and how, uh, you know, I always I got interested in economics in large part because I heard my parents talk about the Great Depression. and. Mm-hmm and the difficulties that they went through during that time, and that was one of the reasons that I decided to study economics in, uh, at, uh, at Rutgers University. But Well, one of my favorite parts of doing the base book, in addition to talking to established contacts, at the Chicago Fed in the library, we had yellow pages from all over the Midwest, about 60 different yellow pages, and I would pick out six to ten of them at random every six weeks and look up auto dealers and look up, temporary help or employment consultant types and, and local businesses and just call them out of the blue with some mm. cold calling about what they saw in the economy sure. to supplement what we were hearing from, the, for instance, appliance manufacturers or other people. Sure. And the first, their first reaction is, am I in trouble? The Fed is calling me. What's going on? But it was very interesting. You know, talking to them, they would open up very quickly and, and uh-huh. try to, you know, getting a window that way was, you know, you've got to be careful because it's a small sample. It's not like you know, a scientific sample or anything, but that was one of the most fun parts of my my experience on the base book was, was that yellow page exercise. Hmm. So you just at random pick out and I guess probably try to get different industries within your district uh, and then sort of randomly pick people and cold call them. And I guess once they realized that you weren't an enemy, that you were, if anything, a friend or at least somebody who was impartial, then they would open up and talk about their real life experience in their businesses. Yep, they were they were very open as soon as they thought I wasn't from the IRS asking about their. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> that was so a good exercise. I, you you know you you've had experience as a stock market analyst, and I would love to talk to you about that. We we won't have time because there's so many other things uh, to talk about. Uh, but the equity markets and of course the economy in general is uh, you know we are I think. I mean, whether it's Paul Krugman on the left or, or people on the right, I think there's a general understanding that things are not good and that they may be much worse than, are, than we're hearing they are. Um, as, you know, as a formal, so, so I would like to ask you, uh, as a former Federal Reserve economist, 
How did we get ourselves into this mess, which some people think might be as bad as the 1930s till it's over? How did we get ourselves into this mess, and then how can we get out of it? Well, it's a, there's a long and complicated answer, I suspect, and we're still writing the history books as we speak. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick two words that I think are important for thinking about how we got into the mess, and they are moral hazard. It's a, it's a phrase that's long been used in the insurance industry mm-hmm. to describe the kind of incentives. Once insurance companies know that once they provide insurance, there's a possibility that people who have insurance will act, act in more risky ways than than they would otherwise without mm-hmm. the insurance, and and they know this, and they price it that risk into their policies, and, and the kind of they do some monitoring and careful sort of scrutiny of of that risk that they're exposed to because they're insurance companies, at least if they're not uh, insurance companies that are about to be bailed out, and that's the that's the more important part of the story. Mm-hmm. The uh, the ways in which moral hazard, you and I and everyone else in America have set up a uh, artifice of insurance mechanisms in a variety of ways, helping to guarantee uh, financial institutions, especially large ones, from the downsides of their losses. And when that happens, there's an incentive for them to take more risk if it's Mm -hmm. not priced or or monitored appropriately. Mm -hmm. And we have things on the surface that have been advertised to to help manage that risk, but they were woefully inadequate in, in going into the crisis. And... I, it's not just you know blaming the uh, Fed or other banking regulators or insurance regulators or Congress. At the end of the day, I think you and I and everyone else had a responsibility for taking care of our own wallets as taxpayers, mm-hmm. and we didn't do our job in monitoring the, the risks that were being undertaken in the financial system mm-hmm. on the basis of these guarantees that are out there. There's a few different sources of these types of guarantees. We could talk about that. You know, the discount window is available. That's obviously one that people know about. The fact that the Federal Reserve serves as a lender of last resort can be a source of moral hazard if it's not sure. monitored or priced appropriately. Uh, there's other sources, though, too. Of course, deposit insurance, people are sure. aware of that. If the government is involved in, in insuring and stabilizing deposits, you can have you can have an incentive to take more risk if your your money coming in is insured. And finally, there's a very important, interesting area that not too many people know about, but an important set of guarantees that have been out there historically are the the Federal Reserve's guarantees. You and I use banks to pay each other money. Mm-hmm. But banks also pay each other money, in part mm-hmm. because you and I pay each other money through banks. Sure. And the, the payment systems, the interbank payment or wholesale payment system, there's a Federal Reserve system called Fedwire that moves over a trillion dollars every day in between the banks. And, and the Federal Reserve guarantees every payment to the recipient even if the sending bank doesn't have the money on its account at the time mm-hmm. it sends the payment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that guarantee called Fedwire is something that can be, well, a longer story, but that's another source of the set of arrangements that can provide moral hazard and, and risk-taking to mm-hmm. a greater extent if it's not monitored correctly. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, you know, if there's a basic story, we, we got into trouble because we set up all these guarantees and, and paid a price for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly remember uh, Robert Rubin, I think, when he was Treasury Secretary, warning, or not warning so much as telling everybody that whatever he, he was about to do would not lead to moral hazard. And I kept thinking, well, I wonder, and I don't remember what the policy was at this point, but I just I can still picture him on television talking about, no, no, don't worry about moral hazard. It's not an issue. And I don't remember who was getting bailed out at that time. You were probably at the Fed during those days, during the Clinton years. It might have been LTCM, you did the Long-Term yeah, I, Capital that, Management. That, that, Yes, I think it might have been the LTCM. Uh, that very well might have been the case. 
Well, I certainly, uh, you know, all of these things that you talk about, though, are considered and have been considered good things by most people. I mean, most people, you know, coming out of the 1930s, they wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, you didn't have a run on the banks. But, but on the other hand, um, I guess if, if banks knew that they could become illiquid and have to pay, pay uh, demands for, for, you know, people wanting to get their deposits back, then they would be very careful, wouldn't they? They would be much more careful if they knew their very lives, uh, their very, their very existence depended on it. I think that's accurate, and that's something we should consider going forward. Uh, the free banking world is a, an interesting place, and considering, you know, it's, it's a, maybe a shocking thing to consider, but, but closing the FDIC and closing the Federal Reserve and closing other sources of public welfare payments to large institutions that you know that got us here in the first place may be a, a good thing and maybe you know all these all these mechanisms that we set up to stabilize things consider let's go way back consider you know the panic of 1907 where we learned that you know the uh, the system as a whole can be susceptible to the the kind of problems that that we've actually seen lately well after mm-hmm. 1907 what did we do we we established a central bank in order to stabilize and and ensure elastic currency and what happened 20 years after we set up the central bank? Mm-hmm. We had the worst banking crisis at least right. until then in our history. Right. In part because of the central bank, the historians will now tell you. Mm-hmm. And did the Federal Reserve really learn its lessons? Um, well, after we had the Federal Reserve not well, essentially fail in its original mission, we added on top of that the FDIC and the deposit insurance scheme in order to further bolster people's confidence in their deposits. Mm-hmm. But it's possible all these stabilization schemes in the long run set up a, an ultimately unstable system, even though it's advertised to be stabilizing. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly another area of, of discussion could be derivatives, I suppose. Derivatives look like they, at least for the individuals that are involved in some transaction, might actually uh, seem to reduce the risk uh, for that particular transaction, but I'm wondering if over uh, the system as a whole, it might not have become, derivatives might not have, have made the whole system more risky. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I guess you can't look at derivatives on their own. I think you have yeah. to consider them in light of the overall framework, including the lender of last resort function and all the mm-hmm. other guarantees we've talked about. The derivatives markets, the exchange-traded derivatives markets or the over-the-counter derivatives markets, in theory, can be a place where people can hedge their risks mm-hmm. and and do so in a way that transfers risks from people that that uh, want to assume it and and then write these policies or effectively insurance policies and including insurance policies on financial instruments as we've learned with with AIG. It can be an efficient way to transfer risk. Mm-hmm. But, but but if you look at it in the context of the broader framework of of guarantees that we've established. I know there's an interesting distinction between the Chicago markets where you and other exchange-traded derivatives markets where you have a clearinghouse function and a policing mechanism within the clearinghouse, and perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, although the jury is still out perhaps, but there's, it's probably you know, a more stable arrangement. There's more private incentives to manage the risk within the derivative system mm-hmm. in these exchange-traded markets as opposed to the over-the-counter markets where I was you know, looking at this and scratching my head and you know, effectively was the Federal Reserve Bank in New York serving as the clearinghouse. And I think that's you know it wasn't explicitly doing that, but it it was in in, in the background in light of what happened with AIG and the other big yeah. banks. So sure. yeah, I, I think on balance, given the combination of derivatives with the set of incentives, not derivatives per se, but derivatives in combination with the set of uh, arrangements that we've had to guarantee the big banks, I think it's been very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the uh, we had uh, Walker Todd 
uh, on with us a couple of weeks, three weeks ago or so, and Walker talked about, uh, we, we talked about a possible return to the gold standard, and we also talked to Ron Paul and Louis Lehrman uh, collectively two weeks ago about that very topic, and we're going to talk to someone else uh, following you today who thinks it's inevitable that we will be going back uh, or going forward, however you want to phrase it, to a gold standard. John Butler's written a book called The Golden Revolution. We'll be talking to him in the second hour of today's show. But one of the things Walker mentioned, he says, whether or not we go to a gold standard or not, in his view, fractional reserve banking is really a problem. And uh, so I'd like your opinion on that. I mean, obviously, banks can lend multiple times, and we've seen a relaxation in banks, the big banks fighting to have less reserve requirements all the time so they can leverage up even more, even in this more dangerous environment. I think I saw in the Financial Times the other day, banks were hoping to use, wanting to be able to use um, intellectual property as collateral so that they could, so they could get around the, uh, the, the, uh, the capital requirements. It seems to me that this, and then of course, just you know, lend, making loans on top of loans on top of loans, when the amount of money and capital at the banks available is just woefully inadequate, and so that the room for error is so small with these banks. So, what about this whole notion of fractional reserve banking? Is that something that you think should be considered again? Well, uh, yeah, Walker is one of my favorite people, and I'm certainly respectful of Dr. Paul and others like Louis Lehrman. I guess, again, I'd have to answer in the context of, on its own, is fractional reserve banking necessarily evil, or mm-hmm. is it in combination with what we've done as a society mm-hmm. to allow the banks to lever up on the bed of guarantees that are underneath the fractional reserve system? Mm-hmm. If we had some discipline in government, and if we had some discipline at the Federal Reserve, and we, then I wouldn't be quite so worried about fractional reserve banking. I tend to respect freedom and mm-hmm. the ability of any bank to decide how much to lever up as long sure. as there's the risk and its taxpayer, its stockholders and depositors bear the risk of the downside. Sure. sure. And, and that's the, if that's impossible, if we can't count on government not to bail people out on the downside, then maybe we do have to consider whether or not fractional reserve banking, should we have a 100% reserve banking system? That's it's possible we should if, we, if we're that confident or we're not confident that government won't bail people out on the downside. Mm-hmm. Well, you have so much uh, to offer along these lines uh, as a former Federal Reserve economist in, uh, in terms of what needs to be done, what should be done. I know you also, uh, you also looked at the rating agencies when you were at the Chicago Fed, uh, and, and you had some real, uh, some real good ideas, I think, cer- certainly revolutionary ideas, according to many people, in terms of what maybe what, how that should have been structured. And you were very concerned about it long before the problems that, that erupted with the housing debacle. Uh, and I'd like to go there if we have time, but I do have to ask you uh, about your experience and the letter uh, that the Federal Reserve wrote warning people on, I think it was August 2nd of 2001, about, um, about potential terrorist activities. Uh, and also, you noticed uh, the uh, very, very strange or, I guess, uh, anomalous increase in M1 uh, in the weeks leading up to 9-11. Uh, talk to our listeners about your concerns uh, and your questions that, that uh, those events raised in your mind. Okay, sure, Jay. Um, in my last uh, position or project at the Federal Reserve, I was invited to work in the money laundering area. And uh, I knew a little bit about interbank payments and some other things, didn't, but I didn't know much about money laundering, and I was asked to develop a, a reference document if it was good for the Federal Reserve System. And I chose to write a primer 
because I, you know, just to teach myself and anyone else new to the area about money mm-hmm. laundering. Mm-hmm. And in late, that was in late 2003, and I, and I noticed two things. One, this letter you mentioned that was written on August 2, 2001. It was a non-routine letter coming from the Board of Governors urging the reserve banks to scrutinize suspicious activity reports. It did not mention, as you, you said, but it did not mention terrorism or its financing explicitly. Mm. Okay. But they were known to be part of the realm of suspicious activities. Mm-hmm. Sure. And in late 2003, we didn't know as much as we do now about the extent of intelligence warnings that were available in the months before 9-11. And my, my question was whether or not that letter was related to any, any heightened intelligence about a terrorist threat. In part, I was interested, certainly very interested in it, because I'd, I'd noticed something else. The, you know, the Federal Reserve, of course, you talk about the monetary aggregates, M1, mm-hmm. M2, M3. Well, within M1, the narrowest part of M1 is currency circulating outside of banks. Mm-hmm. And there was an extraordinary surge in currency circulating outside of banks in July and August 2001. August 2001 alone was the third fastest-growing month in the currency component of M1 since World War II, mm. trailing only December 1999, which makes some sense with the Y2K thing on the horizon. Mm-hmm. People were getting money out of the banks. And the second fastest going month was January 1991. And two possible explanations there, I don't know if they're, but two things that could help explain it would be the onset of U.S. military action in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting reasons why currency is used in military operations. And, in fact, that's been investigated in recent years in Afghanistan as well as Iraq. And the, sec- the, sec- the other reason there was that there was an important enforcement month in the BCCI scandal mm-hmm. in January 1991. So those are the first two, two months. And the third month was August 2001. At the same time, the Fed had written this letter urging people to scrutinize suspicious activity reports. Mm-hmm. And there may be a completely innocent explanation. I don't, I don't think it's completely innocent, but it's possible that Argentina and the banking crisis in Argentina explained everything. Mm-hmm. Billions of dollars, $100 bills is what we're talking about above normal. Billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And the banking crisis in Argentina, people were, were taking money out of their banks, including dollar-denominated accounts in Argentina. Mm-hmm. But there are two other explanations that are, are still very plausible. Um, one, that under the money laundering laws and other laws in time of war, assets in the banks can be frozen and seized, as we did after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And if you think something is coming and you know your assets in a bank or a securities account might be at risk, you have an incentive to uh, get your money into the underground economy. And one way to do that is to get your dollars out and into harder assets, including diamonds and other forms of metals. So that's one, it seems, it seems like a very important and open, still open question is whether or not that was going on before 9-11. It's a very plausible explanation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, uh, you simply raised the question before we get to, to, um, well, well, you, you raised the question and you wrote a letter to the Federal Reserve or to, to the, uh, to somebody at the Fed, uh, concerning well, I, I wrote something internally at the Chicago Fed. I was asked mm-hmm. to go ahead and answer the question that I'd raised and mm-hmm. I kind of looked around and actually talked to a senior examiner and said, asked him if it would be appropriate to call the Board of Governors staff in the area of interest and ask them the question. Mm-hmm. He said, that's where I would start, so that's what I did. I called the staff in this area, and I didn't go into the phone call with a, you know, I gotcha attitude, and I was hoping to, you know, add some insight into how we could investigate mm-hmm. 
material that would be of interest. And uh, there was a shorter call than I anticipated. And a week later, my assignment was terminated. I was told I had committed an egregious breach of protocol, mm. calling the board and asking the question, even though I'd been asked to answer it internally. And a, a month later, my position at the Federal Reserve was eliminated. Mm. Oh. That uh, was a difficult time for you, no doubt. You uh, had a, f- a young family to feed, and uh, but you were just simply trying to ask some, some questions. I mean, certainly it would be easy enough to... Uh, uh, to not be too curious about these things and just collect your paycheck. There's still, I'm still curious, and I, I, I hope, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to drop this as soon as I can. But it's been, I haven't seen evidence otherwise that it's, it's worth dropping. It's still an open question in my head. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something about you, Bill, that uh, makes you want to dig for the truth and find out what's going on. And I, uh, I, I so, so much respect that. I think there's a a part of that, I, I can remember times when I worked at, at a bank, and um, uh, and we were not. Uh, we, I was working in a bank, um, and there were at a time when uh, during the Ross Perot uh, when he was running for president. I remember the very issues that you were talking about, in essence, about um, uh, about this uh, uh, this moral hazard. And I can remember the bank that I was working for, and another bank in the U.S. Uh, we're making loans, risky loans to Mexico, but knowing full well we would be bailed out. And I can remember uh, somehow I thought that some of the things that Ross Perot had to say made some sense, uh, but I knew very well politically that it wasn't you weren't supposed to go there. So I wonder if this isn't something that is fairly well, if this isn't something, you know, the sort of pressure that people feel isn't pretty widespread throughout corporate America. And in turn, you know, are people willing to start asking more fundamental questions and open to be open to thinking about what we're talking about, not just about you know that last story we were talking about, but the moral hazard issues? And yeah. I think I think it's time for America to well, we've had a wake up call. Yeah, and it's a good time to start doing some fundamental thinking about how we've organized our financial markets. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I really uh, thank you, Bill, for coming on. We're we're really out of time already. It's. Uh, I think I had about 10 pages of questions to ask you. I got to the one half of the first page. So I would love to have you on again sometime to talk about a number of issues if you're willing to come on. I want to thank you so much. Oh, before we go, though, tell people where they can follow your work. You are involved with, um, uh, well, there's a website. If you can, We're out of time, so can you tell us uh, how people can follow up with you? Oh, sure. I, I, my email address is bill at socialmovementsciences.com. I'm working with a fellow named Richard Lawrence, who's developed, he and I and the original co-founder have developed a system for evaluating the performance of not-for-profit organizations, and in turn, that set up something we've developed called the Liberty Markets Fund for Freedom, which is a, a way to uh, allocate funds to deserving organizations working for free market public policy solutions. Fabulous, fabulous. Thank you very much, Bill, for being with us. Uh, we'll really want to have you back again sometime. Folks, we are out of time for this hour. Don't go away, though, because we're going to be right back with John Butler, who's written The Golden Revolution. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. 
Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. 